Hello and welcome to AU City, your local creative rabbit hole podcast, where every episode is a choose your own adventure, at least for the hosts, and we follow every white rabbit. I am your co-host, Ray Noble. My pronouns are he and they, and I am a queer writer of gay trees and werewolves. And I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> Honestly, that kind of says it all. I'm your other co-host, V Park. She, they pronouns chaotic bisexual rogue currently mainlining coffee in an attempt to rediscover tiny semblance of humanity. Also, <laughs> I sharpen knives to feel joy. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> okay. If you guys have been here before, then you'll know what to expect. But if this is your first time joining us on my personal choose your own adventure day, here is the quick rundown. Our show has an every other episode format based on everyone's favorite writing necessities, showing and telling. Today's episode is the second showy episode of the season. And with that, our episode two of Nancy Drew season four, AU City style. Now, we only have so much time in our showy episodes, so you only get a taste, uh, excuse me, you only got a taste of our season four premiere, Uh, but V did some damage and broke some hearts at the end of it, and I'm going to go ahead and let her inform you of what she made me respond to. (laughs) Sorry if you can hear my cat, like, just going, she's very emotional about it still, so she wants you to hear her thoughts. I'm sure she Um, is. (laughs) Okay, so... The major themes and agendas of the pilot episode, which I actually wrote in like screenwriting, you know, pilots, because that's what I'm doing this season. Um, The major themes and agendas for for my scenes, as you know, this is a very ship driven uh, partnership over here. I am a very ship driven reader and writer, not just romantic relationships, but all kinds of ships. And so my agendas, as we call them, they're all about, you know, uh, like who, how are we going to advance the the relationship less as opposed to advancing the plot? The plot is there, but it's like secondary in my opinion. So the major agendas in the episode of episode one, um, which some of which you saw it. So it's Nancy's new and perfect situation. Nancy throwing herself into work to avoid dealing with her feelings, avoid dealing with Ace or even coming to face with him. Um, and then the last Ace and best scene that we had in the script, which we didn't read aloud was uh, Ace and Bess together babysitting the lost wayward from the carnival that Bess almost hit with her van in the first couple of scenes, who they don't yet know is from the carnival, which is a device that we created for this season. Uh, We were calling it Boss Law's Wayward Traveling Show. It's very, you know, kind of creeptastic and kind of 1920s, 1930s vibes, uh, which we did an an obscene and really unnecessary amount of research on uh, (laughs) the history of traveling shows in the Great Depression era. So uh, I really had to throw some of that in there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so basically the, the NACE, uh, agenda for any NACE fans joining us, mm-hmm. the NACE, Nancy and Ace, I intentionally kept them away from each other, had a lot of, uh, missed very near miss moments where they would talk to one person and then one person, Tamura in particular, you know, is constantly kind of jabbing at that wound and asking, like asking Ace, where's Nancy asking Nancy, where's Ace? Because he loves drama. And he's a bit of a bitch, as we know, which is one of the and reasons I love him so much. He loves um, him so much. She had to bring yeah. him back. The so. bring back Tamura t- agenda is very much up there with my bring back Grant agenda. But I digress. <laughs> so uh, Nancy and Ace end up having like, right toward the end of the episode, basically like a 10 second face to face where literally it's like she opens a door. He's on the other side of the door. It's extremely awkward. Nobody has a chance to say anything to each other. And they're interrupted by Bess, who has just gotten a call that Nick's dad is in the ER. Now, here's the thing. You haven't met Nick's dad yet, but we are in love with him because he has several scenes in this pilot script. 
And our ship setup in this in this season scenario is that Nick's relationship with his dad is part hero worship, part resentment, since he worries that he'll never be able to measure up. Edward Ned Senior Nickerson PhD is an absolute fucking legend, uh, as you will as you will know when you meet him in the pilot and in future scenes. He is basically just a badass genius, like amazing storyteller. The kids at the youth center all love him. Nick's a little jealous about that because of how effortless it seems. Anyway, we love him and I'm a terrible human being. So I put him in mortal danger at the end of the episode because I suck, but I did. Very rude and didn't tell me about it. And didn't tell Ray, forgot to to warn Ray about it. And was like, here, I finished the pilot, read it. Uh, And then I got like an angry text at 3am. Anyway, (laughs) Bess's arc is, you know, obviously trying to restart the woman in white, trying to kind of like come to grips with her innate internal power, wishing this femininity, whatever, obviously to exclusion, as we know, our best, we love her. She's a little messy. She's kind of doing the same thing she always does with her relationships where she lets her, you know, uh, things kind of fall by the wayside. Bess is trying to figure out in this, in this episode, what all the tattoos mean on the runaway wayward that she almost hit with her van, which is a device we're going to continue to use. Um, the major thing that she discovers is that one of the symbols on the skin of this person she almost hit is basically an anti-witch rune, which is setting us up for the fact that there's like a nasty history between the women in white and this carnival and the people that are in it. Um, there's also a little couple scenes of Nancy and Tamara working together. There's obviously some tension there because again, I love mess. Uh, finally, Nick, the, the final part that Nick come, you know, the next scene with Nick is he comes back to the youth center after running some mystical errands for Bess to discover that his dad has collapsed. Um, and the other important thing that you might need to know is law, the, you know, the head of the carnival, the kind of mysterious, uh, Ryan Hudson, but with like grunge and daddy vibes added, mm-hmm. uh, he's in his trailer, which is kind of a giant barrel organ on wheels. It's very Phantom of the Opera meets Peaky Blinders vibes, what we're going for. And we see a device artifact that we're going to continue to use in the series, which is basically, you know, like the barrel organ that makes the creepy carnival music. He has seven copper barrels that each are labeled with the seven deadly sins. Um, He activates the covetous barrel. And when the carnival opens, the music begins to play. And we see the townspeople, of course, Shubei being lured into the carnival, which is setting us up for a device of different barrels do different shit, basically, magically speaking. Uh, The cook comes into his trailer, tells Law that their new kitchen worker has run away. That's when the audience finally realizes, oh, yeah, this person was definitely run away from the carnival. Law says very ominously that she has until midnight to return. Otherwise, she knows the deal. As we know, this guy's a deal maker. Uh, The final image of the script is the wayward woman who we now know his name is Saffron. The name that she was given when she joined the carnival is being lured out of Icarus Hall by the strange music just after midnight. As soon as she crosses the wards, she basically burns to ash and dissolves on the wind. It's very creepy. Fade to black. That's where we left off. You're Thank welcome, you. everybody. Thank you very much. That was beautiful. Uh, poor V was dealing with watching my expressions while reading this. And I'm pretty sure that she got a little bit terrified. But I have a cat that is currently like doing zoomies around the room and like hitting every noisy thing that she possibly can while also being incredibly cute (laughs) i'll just say yeah there's a reason that the logo for this show is a cat in a box because we both have a lot of cats and we realized early on we weren't going to be able to take that chaotic element out of the production Mm -hmm. of this show so we're just going to integrate it in so you heard my cat screaming earlier you're one of ray's cats zooming now it's just part of the experience embrace it it's it makes it more immersive 
perfect. It does. All right. So what are you going to be showing us today? And especially again, I know you wanted to do this on recording. How are you as a fellow writer, as a collaborator, <laughs> storyteller, if you will, uh, how are you using this as a reactionary tool <laughs> to everything that I did and or did not do? Uh, and how is that going to impact? Just, just give us a brief, like, 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 like segue us into it. Gently, if possible. Okay, okay. I will gently segue us. So um, I will say we are probably not going to see as much happening in my episode as we did in V's because I went for the narrative style, which just pros in general, scenes are longer, takes longer for things to happen. Scripts are different. <laughs> so uh, we will not see necessarily as much progression in the story. However, I do think that um, I, I retaliated a little bit. I retaliated a little bit. I think that you're going to see um, something that I don't think you'll expect because I certainly didn't expect you to give Nick's poor dad a fucking heart attack when we hadn't even like met him yet. Like what the fuck? They literally just moved. We've had like an episode with them. I, my brain just exploded. It was very rude. So what we will be seeing here today is some slight retaliation. V will be getting the rest of the retaliation later outside of this particular episode. Listen, uh, it's not like he died. He's fine. He's no. fine. He's going to be fine. Yeah. Probably. He's going to be fine. We did agree. We did agree. I think that we can't kill him. Yeah. Oh, we weren't going to. No, at no point we we're going to kill him. But, you know, exactly. this show is about suffering on a number of levels as well. It is. It is all about the angst. So, yeah. So I will be reacting. Um, however, I am quite excited to dive in. Uh, so I think I'm going to go ahead and start getting there. Can you tell tell us who is POV you're starting with? Because I have a feeling that you did this for me specifically. <laughs> I am starting with an ace POV. Yes. And, uh, we are um, jumping a little bit forward in time, not by much. So I'm literally just going to give you guys the straight setup of what we will be reading. We are reading two different POVs today. We are reading Ace and Bess. They are in chronological scenes. So you will literally be seeing them from one to the next. And they are going to be together again because this is going to be a heavy, heavy Ace and Bess season. Mostly the just tanker. Because- Agenda. Yeah, we love the Platanker agenda. We're going to keep pushing it. I think that they are the perfect little best friend duo, and I'm going to milk it for everything it's got. You milk so. that cow. You milk that cow so hard. All right, I'm going to mute myself now so that I can, so that no one has to be uh, subjected to my squeals when I <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Awesome. Okay, then, now that V is muted, I'm going to give us the quick setup. Imagine. Ace and Bess, and also the three fangirls walking up to this weird little carnival in the middle of Horseshoe Bay that just really doesn't make any sense, but it looks pretty wonky, but pretty cool and also a little creepy. There's just a lot of energy, a lot of vibes here. That's how we're starting the scene. Let's go. The theme music at the carnival entrance was a calliope and organ rendition of Dance Macabre, which Ace knew too well. He'd once rabbit holed on anxiety inducing music for a ghost situation that it didn't pan out. At first, he didn't see any issue with his particular composition, but as it rang out above him now, Ace understood instantly why it had been banned, especially played on loop. Or maybe it was just that Ace was already anxious on top of babysitting three children, especially in the wake of another friend's father's heart attack. 
Sure. Only one of the fangirls was really a kid. The other two were straddling that tween teen line, but that didn't change the stress level. Ace was now responsible for the lives, lives of three, well, no, four, including himself, human lives. The anxiety was warranted, justified even. Babysitting was definitely easier than facing the wrath of a stressed out George, however, and still less stress inducing. This is so cool, said the tiniest fan, Ted. Her hair was pulled into two braids on either side of her head, glasses perched on her nose, and holding her hand on the other side was Charlie, the not including George, middle fan child. Jesse was busy questioning Bess about the hashtag van life, the two of them straggling behind. Is it? Ace asked, eyes, eyebrows furrowing, nose scrunched as they paused outside the carnival entrance to let Bess and Jesse catch up. The second Bess had pulled up to the fan apartment complex, Jesse had gone in on the questions. Everything from how much the van cost her originally, her future plans for it, if she'd named it. Ace had done his best to intervene or change the subject, but the fangirls were no easier to argue with than their eldest sister. So the subject didn't change, and Bess kept mouthing, it's okay, to a guilt-ridden ace in the passenger's seat. <laughs> super, super cool, Charlie agreed. Both girls st stared up at the carnival signage in awe. The wayward traveling show towered over them, paint chipping and wood splintering. It was a walking insurance liability. That and a bad omen, ace was positive about. Intuition told him he didn't want to cross beneath the threshold. None of them did. However, the last thing he'd been positive about, Nancy's feelings. And that, that had shot him in the ass, if he was being totally honest. So maybe his metrics were off. <laughs> maybe he didn't know what he was talking about. I'm sorry I'm for that pterodactyl scream of emotion. <laughs> I will control myself in the future. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. That's all I wanted. <laughs> oh, thank you. None of that stopped his gut from feeling right, though. Cool isn't exactly the word that comes to mind, Bess said as her gaze followed the fan siblings, then shot to Ace. Worry of the, we just finished handling a supernatural baddie, can we not, variety prominent on her face. This is a tad bit antiquated. Vintage is always in, Charlie replied offhandedly, her tone nonchalant. Bess raised her eyebrows and pursed her lips at the usually quiet sister, impressed by their new shared interest. Actually, very true. I recant my statement. Okay, I'm not going to stand and listen to the creepy music anymore. Are we heading for the games first? Sites? Is there like a petting zoo or something? Ace asked, rubbing his hands together as he moved to the front of the group, his back to the carnival. Oh, there's a menagerie. That means animals. Jessie's voice was louder than her sister's, and she grabbed Ted's other hand, pulling them both with her as she ran past Ace. We got to see. I guess that's pretty close to a petting zoo, Ace said as the sisters whipped past him. He felt rather like Wiley e. Coyote spinning whenever the fan sister's roadrunner sped past him. Bess let out a gasping laugh before she grabbed Ace's hand, running behind them as well. The moment should have been fun, and Ace should have been laughing too. Yet Ace could feel the hair on his arms on the back of his neck standing as they raced through the aisles. Passing stands of ring tosses and other gaming scams, giant stuffed animals hovering above them all at all angles. It was menacing. The same uncanny, menacing vibe that he'd gotten when he'd first heard Don's Macabre. Ace could feel the carnival's hunger like he was aware of the emptiness in his own chest and he didn't like the mirror image. The menagerie that Jesse had seen was at the far end, as deep as they could go. Yes, our plan is to start from the back and see where we end up, Bess said with another half laugh. Her cheeks were rosy, her smile genuine. Ace felt like a piece of prep for not being able to enjoy the moment. There was no reason for it except for his own intuition. 
Sounds like a proper mystery, Ace replied as they slowed. The building in front of them was a giant caravan, almost the same size as one of the event stands. Its doors were wooden and old, cracking just like the entrance sign. The paint was dull, faded from years of travel and sun exposure. Jesse pushed through the door, obeying the sign that said, come in without hesitation. Bess made a noise akin to no and stop at the same time, diving in behind the sisters, lest her hopes to compose an itinerary disappeared with the girls. For only a second, it left Ace outside alone. He looked up to the caravan at the dangling menagerie sign that hung over his head. It wasn't as faded as the rest of the building. The paint looked fresh, almost new in comparison to everything else he'd seen. Anachronistic was the word that came to mind. Newer than it should have been. Newer than most of the people working at the carnival itself, he had to admit. If Ace was being the detective Nancy had turned him into. Weird that all the employees were old, though. Ace tossed a glance over his shoulder, making eye contact with a fellow fellow covered in tattoos, dark circles making them look sickly, his skin sallow. As soon as he did, the empty hunger seemed to snap at him full force. Ace's mouth went dry and he swallowed his doubts about the caravan to push in after his best friend. Bess, Ace said as he, inst- as he was instantly assaulted by a bush- bushel of drying flowers, feathers stuck around it like a bohemian bouquet. I don't think this place's chakras are flowing, he hissed over the younger younger sister's heads, hoping he could manage to alert her to the oddness without freaking out the sisters. That was the last thing they needed. It wasn't their parent in the hospital, but Millie was the only mother figure that George had right now. George wanted or maybe needed to be there for her, and that was a lot of weight to put on her shoulders. The weight would start cracking, crashing down to her siblings if she wasn't careful, and so the village chipped in. Even when the Drew crew wasn't on the case, Ace told himself, they would be there for each other. All of them would, even if it didn't feel like it. It's aligned. The chakras would be out of alignment, Bess said, but shrugged. I know it's a bit out of date, but I really don't think it's... Bess's words were interrupted by her letting out a small but aggressively pointed shriek, dropping the rabbit's foot she'd picked up before Ace followed them in. There was a small selection of odds and ends littered around the small entrance before it opened into a jungle of dark silks and iron rock cages. Ace watched as it fell. That was odd. It wasn't shiny. He didn't think he'd ever seen Bess ogling something with an obvious shine factor to it. Oh, nothing to fear, darling, came a voice that sounded so much like honeyed Berman it might have been slicker than the drink itself. Nothing bites, in here at least. Ace's eyes went wide as he shifted to look at who had scared Bess, and he swallowed hard. The figure stood at the end of the room, leaning her shoulder against the doorframe into another room with a black, blackened out windows behind her. She didn't bother letting her dark eyes settle on Ace or Bess. Instead, she looked directly at the little fan sisters, a bit like they were food. Ace recognized the hunger and narrowed his eyes, but Bess, Bess patted him on the shoulder before she leaned down to pick up the rabbit's foot. Anything in particular that you're looking for? We have the most impressive collection of occult curiosities and oddities this side of Maine, the figure said. You may call me Mina, she said, reaching a long-fingered hand out to the fan sisters. I want to be a marine biologist, Jesse started in, instantly grabbing Mina's fingers with her own, shaking her hand exuberantly. Do you have anything from the ocean? Do I? (laughs) Darling, I've got everything you could wish for back here, she said. Her laughter rang through the room like the sound of glasses clinking in cheers. The fangirls were enraptured. The woman dropped Jesse's hands and swept through the tiny room like a hurricane, rattling jars and unsteady table legs and the silk draperies. I like bunnies, Ted said, and Bess carefully set the rabbit's foot down on the nearest surface. Luckily, she didn't notice the giant fuzzy spider that was inside of it. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, Charlie looked around the room like it, was, like it was verifiably horrifying and kept her fingers tightly around Ted's tiny hand. I don't want to look at anything. Thank you, Charlie managed before looking up at Bess, Mina's spell over her broken. Can we get a funnel cake? I don't want to look at anything in here. Bess nodded quickly, looking over her shoulder to Ace. Would you keep an eye on these two while I run out to find food with Miss Charlie here? He nodded, and then he pulled his phone out. I'll drop a pen, he said to Bess. And she nodded as he, she opened her palm for Charlie's hand. Jesse took hold of Ted's hand in turn, and Ace shifted so that Mina was forced to look at him, hovering behind the girls. When she finally pulled her gaze to his, she looked wholly unimpressed, but gave a generous smile as she waved her fingers at Bess and Charlie in goodbye. Your fear is delicious, she said with a grin, wagging a single finger at her. Don't forget that. Emotions have tastes, don't have tastes, Ted said matter-of-factly when the door shut behind her sister and Bess, looking up at Mina before Ace could stop her. Ah, the menagerie owner said as she kneeled, pulling a small glass jar out from behind her. Inside of it were moths, all of them sitting on something inside with them, feasting away while barely fluttering, fluttering their little wings. Everything you feel has taste. Everything. It sticks with us and it sticks in our skin and our bones. Except it's kind of like how you can only see ourselves in our own reflection. You'll never really know what you look like. Only what you can perceive, she said. Just as Ted's tiny brown eyes looked like they were about to pop out of her head. You know, I think we need to go get phone cakes too, guys, Ace said. Neither Jesse or Ted seemed to notice him and neither did Mina. The jar was glowing and it seemed like a pretty good reason why. Wow, Ted said as her head looked directly inside of it. Jessie pulled her away a half second later, looking in herself. Each time they did, they just stared for seconds at a time. Guys, Ace said again, his original question ignored. Mina didn't lift her gaze at all, but the lilting tune of the dance macabre seemed to grow a little louder in his ears. Funnel cakes? Bess? Charlie? End scene. <laughs> And then You're lucky that I had myself muted for that last part because I was making the most fun <laughs> noises. Oh, good. I'm glad. I will say I was pretty excited about your reaction. Thank you. 30 second reaction and then we'll go to best. Okay. So first of all, love that we're getting aces in her monologue and challenging that stoner chill like exterior that oh, we all yeah. know is a front. And like, because 100%. you and I, we both have anxiety and we both present our anxieties very differently and have very different affectations. Oh I love to, that's one of my favorite things about narrative is to get inside a character's head who like looks super chill on the outside and they're freaking the fuck out on the inside. Second mm -hmm. point, one of the other agendas that we have on the show, as you might know, is the neurodivergent agenda. And the fact that every single character in this show is anxious and or traumatized, usually both. <laughs> But they yep. all present in a completely different way. It's almost like a DSM five, but like in a more progressive way, <laughs> like how people handle their traumas. Yeah. And we are going to talk about that in a future episode, but freaking, okay. <sighs> Protective ace, feral, daddy ace. What is a word that is beyond feral? Because I was making <laughs> like banshee shrieks and the banger lines. I have to say, if you haven't read Ray before, Ray is known for just these banger fucking lines of like oh, thank you. delicious, but also disgusting descriptions of things like, yeah, like, yeah. Anyway, please do go on. I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying myself immensely over here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I do want to let it be known that as we jump over to this best scene, we will not be figuring out the end of what happens 
in this menagerie section. That's okay though. We do, we do get things, things still happen and it is still the, the ace and best scene. However, we are jumping forward just a little bit. Um, and that is done on purpose for the record. I am purposefully leaving the end of aces POV here um, because I want it to be very much like I still it's want because to you hate me, right? Because you hate me. Yes, because and I you hate want you. me to suffer. Yeah, okay. I do want you to suffer. Um, but also, it is one of those things where, like, if I was doing this and writing it for TV, even though I'm doing this as a narrative base, I would 100% cut that part and not have anybody know what happens at the end of that scene until we, like, at the end of the episode, if that makes sense. And so. I'm not going to really divulge what happens with the rest of that ace scene until we jump back into Ace's head as a narrator, if that makes sense. So, yeah, just so you're aware, as unfortunately, um, we will be moving on to Bess. And uh, while we're not getting any more ace brain moments, sorry, guys. Well, Love it's you, a good but... thing we're pro suffering on this show, right? Exactly. Pro Here we suffering. go. Let's suffer some more together. Yeah. Okay, before I really dive into this, I do want to mention that we will have a selection of trigger warnings for this text, because as we have discussed before, one of our main agendas in this is really, really diving into Bess and making her a more fleshed out character. We really do believe that she has um, in the show laid the groundwork for having um, great representation for EDs if we could attempt to actually get the writers to do something. So we're going to dabble in that a little bit. And so I just want to basically give you guys a quick list of trigger warnings. We will be possibly mentioning um, calorie counting, anorexia, bulimia, childhood trauma, and some mal uh, malnutrition and starvation, just so you know. Okay, and now we will be diving in to Bess. Funnel cakes, corn dogs, a single turkey leg, kettle corn. The treats were never ending and the sense constantly overwhelming, mouthwatering, begging you for just a little taste, then maybe a little bit more. Start with an elephant ear, finish off with a deep fried Oreo and a shave ice, or perhaps an amuse-bouche of curly fries drenched in chili and cheese, followed by an entree of pepperoni pizza slices topped with cotton candy. The options were endless, and Bess was fairly sure the grumbling in her stomach could be heard over the twanging, bittersweet music that kept playing. Such an odd choice for a festival. Carnival. <laughs> Are you okay? Charlie asked as she looked up at Bess, who had absently been tearing into her funnel cake and not actually eating any of the pieces, just dropping them on the ground behind her, like breadcrumbs with no one to follow. Oh, peachy, she said as she finally managed to pop a bit of the dough into her mouth. It melted. The taste of oil and sugar and doughy, buttery goodness flooded over her tongue, and for just a moment, she savored the bite until she realized Charlie was still staring at her. Charlie grinned as she ripped a giant bite of her own funnel cake. The menagerie came into view and a few steps further. So did Charlie's sisters and Ace, too. The two girls looked a little awestruck, and Ace looked confused. She made a note, but her eyes flicked toward a stand a few booths down, neon lights stating that the psychic at Wayward Fortunes and more was open for readings. Positively peachy, I promise, Bess urged again, dragging her focus back to Charlie. If you say so, Charlie said with a shrug, and Bess did. In fact, if you ask Bess Tarani Marvin, drop the Marvin, she was doing great, splendid even. If you ask the Bess in the mirror, she might have been a little bit more honest. But Bess was not asking her for exactly that reason, however. 
Bess, real Bess, was in full and utter belief that she was doing fantastic. Thank you. She'd recently read an article about how being delusional about the state of your life was actually the best thing you could do to improve the state of your life. And so Bess had decided to take the bull by the horns, as she did every bull she encountered metaphorically, and dive into full grandiose delusion, mostly. It had been a rough six months. A rough year, even. The last few days had felt like a small reprieve, aside from the laughter of the Drew crew hangs and shenanigans. And then again, that was exactly why the last few days had been so blissfully dull. It seemed like the only thing that could bring the Drew crew together lately was a mystery. Horseshoe Bay was still full of them, but Nancy was doing her best to etch her independence into the stones of Icarus Hall for whatever reason. In silent unison, the other crew members had decided to let her. Aside from that ace, Bess could see him wading through his insecurities miles away, and her heart throbbed for him, knowing how painful that sort of feeling was, especially considering she still had plenty more of it to do. That didn't currently align with Bess's life plan, however. No, Bess Tarani, again, for everyone in the back, the Marvin dropped, was going to live her best life, and that meant she had to align herself with her best life. And that meant paying for shiny things instead of plucking them out of people's pockets. It meant taking the role of historical society caretaker seriously. It meant taking her magic to the next level. It also meant she'd forgotten a date with Addie the night before, which didn't seem like a best self-best Tarani self move. At least not in an obvious way. It made best Tarani look like a flake uncaring and maybe a bit thoughtless all things Bess prided herself on being the opposite of and yet the person Bess had been flaking out on the most caring about the least thoughtlessly ignoring their needs herself Bess Tarani no longer Marvin had never been particularly kind to herself she'd spent her youth gauging how much she could eat trick herself into feeling full how much she would need to make to make it to look like she had eaten and spending every other second unhappy, not only with the way she looked, but the way she acted, the people she loved and more. Everything was second, triple questioned. Did they have enough to last until more money would come? Would there be transportation? Could they get anywhere to pick up food in the first place? Bess had spent so much time focusing on surviving, on making her life better, that Bess had forgotten about herself. <laughs> Eventually, the fear of food turned into, into a dependency on it once she was safe. She was obsessed with sweets or novelty treats. She couldn't let herself enjoy things without ultimately being cruel. So Bess fucking Tarani was going to start being nice to herself. God damn it. Ace, she called, catching him as he stared up toward the Hall of Mirrors. Kitty Corner from the Menagerie was a massive house-like structure that looked more like a pop-up out of a storybook than a home. There was something odd about it, though. Ace had his head tilted to the side at the same time Bess noticed the shadows looked odd. Her heart thudded in her chest, but she brushed it off. A trick of the light. Ace shook his head and waved to her as he crossed the makeshift path. The creepy lady in the menagerie mentioned that there was a fortune teller right next door. You must come get a reading with me. My treat, Bess said with a grin. Ace's eyes went wide and he shook his head. No, thanks. I have no need to look into my future today. I'm overwhelmed with my present enough as it is, he insisted. Before he could lift his hands up in defense of his stance, Bess grabbed his wrist and wobbled her bottom lip. Torani, don't you dare, he said quietly, voice darkening, but still amused. That's not fair. Ace, I need you beside me while I get my reading. You know how difficult these last few weeks have been for me. You're going to make me get a reading too, and I don't want to consent to more people playing in my energy. 
Ace said, sighing. Beth shook her head. No, no. How about this? Let me put a protection word on you and I'll even add a little charm to help propel anyone who wants to play with your energy. It'll make it so they can only look. How about that? Beth asked this time, batting her lashes. Ace was putty in her hands. Fine, he replied, not even bothering to ug at her this time. I'll do it. The witch grinned as she rummaged through her purse, finding a permanent felt pen in silver that would do the trick. Your left wrist, please, she said, and with a heavy sigh, Ace complied. This is a protective sigil. I'm making it just for you. Take a picture of it and keep it on your phone so you can draw it again if you need to. It should at the very least keep others from meddling in your energy. Ace nodded as he watched the pen's tip slide against his skin and he braced himself, shutting his eyes tight. Bess laughed through her nose. This isn't some trick of temperances. It's legitimate and it's not going to hurt you, she stated, shrugging. Then she handed his wrist back to him. She'd drawn a sigil that looked suspiciously suspiciously like she'd put the letter A inside of an eyeball. Ace blinked at it for a moment or two before heaving a breath, looking back over his shoulder toward the fangirls at the ring toss and nodded. Let's go. The fortune teller was in an open booth, deep burgundy curtains pulled to the side to reveal an iron wrought table with spiraling legs and chairs to match. There was a leaf bodied tattooed from shaved skull to foot soul sitting behind the table, fingers dancing over a deck of cards. The gold foil embossed on their back caught the overcast sunlight with every shuffle. Ah, said the reader as Beth approached, taking taking in her shoes and moving upward slowly. You're the energy I felt. Bess's cheeks readied with the flush of the of the reality of being seen, mixed with pride from a stranger seeing and acknowledging her power. Ace squeezed her hand. Yes, I believe so, she replied before freeing Ace from her grip. I'm Bess. I'd love a reading if you're available. Of course, both of you take a seat. I was hoping you would arrive. I have messengers of yours whispering in my ears, especially you, the psychic said with a direct glance to Ace. A pointed glance back at Bess. He's not here for a reading, Bess insisted for him, but the psychic shuffled the cards and ignored her words. I'm not a reader in the traditional sense. I'm a channeler. I see and speak to your guides, and then I translate to the cards. Most need the visuals, or they won't accept what I'm being told directly. Their tone was bored as they glanced between the two best friends, as if guessing the relationship from afar, or perhaps listening and absorbing the information of the spirits surrounding them. Bess hadn't yet found herself dabbling in sensing, tracking, or further communication with spirits, although it was perhaps something she should discuss with Nancy. It might have come in handy, and considering how fluid it seemed to be for this psychic, this is my specialty, they said, gaze flitting from their cards to Bess, her throat constricted. They were the real deal. My name is Bridger, they said, eyes fluttering closed as their fingers pulled cards from the deck haphazardly. They fell to the purple felt tabletop, ingrained in the iron, face down. I'm a direct conduit. Like a bridge to the other side, Bess said, voice filled with awe. He only nodded in response, instead reaching forward to place the cards that he'd drawn into a straight line across from Bess. As the cards fell, Ace slowly scooted his chair back, its feet scraping against dirt and pebbles. Your spirits don't need cards to speak to you, Bridger said, as though in reply to Ace's shifting seat. The blonde-haired man stilled beneath the psychic's words, and his eyebrows furrowed again. Bess could see him tossing the words over in his brain and could see the neural pathways lighting up as he puzzled over just precisely what he meant. You spend a lot of time focusing on others, Bridger said as they flipped the first card over, pushing it towards Bess, the reverse Queen of Cups. I've been, she started before realizing that perhaps she didn't need to give the psychic every detail, especially considering that they might have already had them. I've known this is where I've been. I'm changing it, though. 
brand new Bess, she thought. The next card was the Ace of Cups. You're trying to change that, however, the psychic said, and Bess nearly choked on her own breath. Ace chuckled, though he covered his mouth to muffle the sound as best he could. At least he tried. Wonderful confirmation. Yes, Bess said, trying her best to point the spirits, guiding the cards in the direction of new information rather than hammering in the old. Although that was what they seemed to do best. As the last card flipped and Bess rolled her eyes, the devil stared back up at her, taunting her. Yet you're running into those straight into those same old tempting patterns, safe zones, safe people, avoiding what strengthens you for fear that it might break you. It's sad to live in the chains of your own mind. Their gaze flashed from Bess to Ace and back again. You'd be amazed how many people are their own worst enemies, they finished before sliding into their card out onto the table. As they placed it on top of the Ace of Cups, face up, three more fell from the, from the deck like droplets of rain. Seven of Swords, the Tower, Five of Cups, and the Magician, with Bridger's fingers still touching it, stared at Bess in her giant brown eyes. If you plan on getting anywhere, you must stop betraying yourself in the name of your comfort. Then again, that may not be the only way to look at these, they went on, their tone shifting for the first time since they had started to draw their cards. Their vowels elongated, their eyes went glassy, then their head shot straight, and they grabbed for Bess's hand so fast and their grip so tight the scream lodged itself in her throat, unable to escape. <laughs> the heart will betray all who love it. The heart will betray all who covet. The heart will betray until the day it breaks. Their voice contained multitudes, seemed bigger than their own chest cavity. Their nails dug into Bess's skin, and a moment later, Ace was grabbing them, throwing them back, shoving Bess away with his other hand. Get off her, dude, he hissed, just in time for Bridger to grab Ace's shoulder, laughter ringing from his lips. How can one soul die so many times in one life? Bess hit Bridger's arm with her bag, enough times that they finally dislodged their grasp on Ace and let them both go. They stood up suddenly, falling back a few steps before they shook their head, and their bored expression returned to their face. You may want to keep an eye on each other's backs, Bridger said, words emphasized with a sniff. You're more than anyone expects you to be. You might want to keep your hands off the customers, Ace said, shoulders squared and mouth downturned in a tense frown as he looked at Bess, who was tugging on the hem of her houndstooth jacket. I don't want to see you near any of my friends again, and if I do, I'm swinging on sight, Ace said as he steered Bess toward the silk-covered entrance. We're not paying for your services. They were freaky and kind of pointless and definitely sounded like purple pros, he spat, as they, though the worst that the psychic could be was a combination of useless, flowery words. Why, if it isn't the most chivalrous morgue attendant in all the land, Ace, Bess said, leaving an awkward silence where her best friend's last name should have been. <laughs> she would have asked, but it made him grumpy, and he, was always, and he always avoided it. Didn't Nancy and George both go to high school with him? <laughs> she pulled out her phone to text Nick to ask George about yearbooks when he had the chance, because if Nick needed it, George would drop everything to get it without question. If Bess asked, well, she'd probably get a snarky reply and she couldn't guarantee that she'd have her hands on the books for weeks. Was this really the most pertinent thing to be thinking about? We need to head to meet back up with the girls, Bess said, sighing as she stuffed her phone back in her pocket without checking the notifications. We said the funnel cake stand is our meeting place, right? Ace nodded, moving to stand behind Bess while he directed her with one hand on her shoulder. Bess laughed as he navigated them as he navigated them back to where she decided Charlie Fan was her favorite of the of George's sisters. None of them were anywhere in sight, however, not at the ring toss where they'd left them or the cotton candy stand where they said they were going to next. Bess took a deep breath to calm the sudden pounding in her chest. 
I don't see them, Ace said, his voice tight as he tried to keep it steady too. Oh no, Bess replied quietly. We just got here and we were only gone for a few minutes. They're probably just not back yet. Right. I'll grab a funnel cake and they'll be here by the time it's ready, he replied, nodding to himself. He's, he made a prediction, likely to settle his nerves. Bess really needed to stop assuming the what, why, and how of her friend's actions, but it was especially hard with Ace. Adding his recent secrecy made it nearly impossible for Bess not to hyperfixate on what was going on in his head, even when she had been almost assaulted by a psychic. Maybe we should be reporting this to someone, she thought, running a thumb over the nail of the indents from Bridger's acrylics. And that is it. And, and scene. scene for now. Love and it. For now. And part of, and I am going to spoil this just a little bit. The Dance Macabre is basically causing some stuff to happen. As we've already kind of discussed, the magic is the, uh, is musical in this situation. Uh, not all of it, but a lot of it. And so the dance macabre is definitely affecting people in different ways as well, if that isn't obvious. So I just wanted to state that here, since that's mm, not something that we will necessarily read on the show. <laughs> well, so. and that's one of the, the great things, right? Like we talk about this a lot, how like a really good scene, it has a, it has a you know, it has beats and it has a drive, but it also closes one door and opens another, right? Or like, it, it answers a question and it asks another. In this case, there's a lot of questions uh, that are asked, which I like. I'm a big fan of that. I like having scenes that kind of cut off with you. What's going to happen next? Because that's the yeah. whole point, right? <laughs> Is to drive, to drive it. But if you're not, that's one thing I've noticed about like a lot of people who are new to writing scenes, how they'll like, they'll like close up everything neatly at the end of every scene, which is, mm -hmm. you know, might seem like a good idea, but then what's driving you, you know, like what's driving right. you to keep going through it. And so with this, like my first comment that I wrote down was I have so many questions <laughs> because even though I like literally know what's, I know what everything is, <laughs> yeah. I, know, I know what things mean. I also Ray does this amazing job always of just kind of figuring out how to kind of like strongly hint at things. Um, which also like, I think we have that in common, right? Like we don't like to overly just come out and tell you what you need to know. We yeah, like I to hate that as a reader and a writer yeah, use so. vibes. And I, I myself yeah. like struggling when I switch formats, I've always found that to be tricky because there are certain, like, like you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, like certain shows, for example, like this, depending on what network they're on, depending on like the audience that they're going for, sometimes they do have rules and tropes of like, Hey, by the way, you have to drop in a little 10 second, like, as you know, Bob, for people who are just joining us and maybe didn't watch the whole last season, or maybe didn't watch the last episode. Um, there's also the joking, like previously on, you know, like the road so far and supernatural mm -hmm. type vibe. But I find that like, for me, it kills me every time I have to do that. Like when I have, for me, it's feelings. If I yeah. have a character who says aloud how they're feeling and they're telling the truth about it, that hurts me in my soul because that's just not, the kid couldn't be me, right? Uh, yeah, no, Capricorn, I'm allergic to feelings, but especially talking about them. Mm -hmm. And so for you, one of my favorite things is that when you write, you always have the character thinking very deeply about how they feel and then acting completely the opposite of how they feel, which again is something that I love about writing novels because you can do that. You know? Yeah. Like, cause on, that's the one thing that's limitation. I mean, I love, I love visual storytelling, but I, I feel that's one of the limitations, especially if you don't get a, an actor who can like, you know, right. really you, emote like, and like, you, you know, the hand flex the vibes. Actor. Yeah. The hand flex, just like the smallest, smallest details <laughs> and like knowing how to subtly evoke an emotion 
from the audience. Like, I don't know. It's just one of those things. Yeah. That, like, or like, the I, miss, I always miss that. Yeah. yeah the hashtag like, yearning. Like I, I love, I love having characters, you know, me, I know I'm a huge slut for mutual pining. Um, but I love how in this, you've even got friendship, mutual pining, which again, big fan of oh, the multi shit, you. you know, ships are everything to me. Like it's very similar. And this show has a, a, a great cacophony of ships happening and complicated relationships with complicated past. But my favorite thing about even just Ace and Bess, literally from season one, you know, as for those who didn't know, Ace started out having a crush on Bess. Mm-hmm. And then one of my favorite scenes of all time is when he first sees her flirt with a girl and it's over the hood of Florence, like his car, who he's in love with, you know, and he sees, Maybe. and he does this thing. I don't know if you've ever watched this clip, but he does this thing where he like, I remember he, this. he physically reacts to realizing that his, the girl he has a crush on, who he really likes is definitely into girls and probably not dudes at this point. Um, and, and he does this like, kind of like, like throwing his hand up, like, like, it's almost like a, like the physical embodiment of I do declare. And then he like, immediately you see him physically process the information and go, but I'm cool with it. And I'm an ally. And then he like, does this little wave off of like, no, no, as you were. And in like those literal two seconds, the actor Alex Saxon and the character base does such a freaking phenomenal job of showing like how to how to not be toxic masculinity in like two seconds or less like He's oh, oh shit this is what's okay i support it and then also like i'm gonna let them fuck around under the hood of my car that's how much of an ally he is he doesn't let anyone touch his car but he's like you know what i will let the lesbians take this and yep. i and i think that moment was one of the reasons like every other show i've ever watched they, you know, they always do that jealousy thing. They do the thing where it's like, oh, the girl I like, like someone else. And they do that toxic masculinity or like the mopey broody, not like other guys, kind of nice guy, nice guys finish last kind of vibe. And they've never done that with the character of Ace. Yep. And so one of my favorite things about how you write him too, is that you've got all of his insecurities are in there, but you're perfectly showing that. What do you call it? The golden retriever white yeah. knight vibe? Yeah. Well, okay. I've, I've, I've officially adjusted it. He's a border collie. He's hundred percent a border collie, but yeah, he has this golden retriever it. white knight vibe. Yeah. Um, but like it is a border collie white knight vibe. And so yeah, that is, you got to collect, collie. collect the, the, you know, yeah. the people you're in charge of her exactly. gently. He, he has a very, like, exactly. He is, he is a border collie that like will nip at your feet and keep you in place and keep you in line. And the fact, and like, that's also another thing that I really wanted to make apparent is that like Bess and Ace immediately once reappearing into like with each other, just like disappear away from the kids, which is not something that they would ever do. Not something either of them would ever do. (laughs) Like they are parents in their minds to half of the fucking drew crew like they are literally the mom and dad even in the platonic way obviously because technically mom and dad is nancy and ace but still but also this is the found family tropes that we love so much right and i think this is why there's like an inherent queerness to this show and and especially for us you know as queer creators family is what you choose it's like instead of the biological family it's your logical family and so one of my favorite things about this is that there is no like there's literally nancy has two dads but they're very different types of dads and like even if they're literally like the adults in the relationship aren't really the adults in the relationship and one of my favorite things is how these people take care of each other like they are family um but but we don't lean into those like toxic tropes of like well if you're the mom then you're this you know and if you're the dad then you're this so 
I think that that's also kind of radical in a way how they, you know, let people and relationships evolve and, uh, you know, let everyone admit to their mistakes. I'm still mad at Carson, by the way, we're not going to go into it. Oh yeah. Um, We're always mad at Carson. So, so so to kind of wrap up this, the showy part of this, just to kind of, um, you know, we always talk about like, how did you do the thing? How did you F around? Like, what, what is it that you really use in terms of devices and what were your main agendas that you wanted to do with this and you feel like you did successfully? Devices, devices. That's always one of the hard ones for me because I can't really see what I'm doing until it's happened because the way that I write, and this sounds really dumb, <laughs> but the way that I write is like inherently organic. And so I don't plan out scenes. I literally just have an idea. I see a vision and then I write it. And I don't, I can't really say that I have like particular plot devices in here that I've meant to put in here, but they are there. They're very obviously there. Um, I definitely wanted to lean into the music because that was something that was set up obviously by B beforehand. And I really love this idea. Um, I think that it's really cool. And so I wanted to really play into making the dance macabre constantly part of the scene in your head, whether or not it was constantly brought up. If that makes sense, like I have obviously Ace mentioning it multiple times, but like even Bess mentions it. She doesn't know the name of the song, doesn't directly say anything about it, but she mentions it. And so I'm trying really hard to make that a very obvious plot device, if that makes sense. Um, Even though, like I said, it wasn't like in my brain as, oh, this will be the plot device. It really comes around actually when I'm editing, just in terms of like when we're talking about fucking around, when I am editing the scene and like going backwards and finding like, okay, what did I do here? How can I weave this through the rest of the episode? Because that was actually a cool thing that I did. And that's kind of how I go back and forth with that. Um, But yeah, so that's basically that's the the if we're going to use device as what we're, we're calling that that's that is how I use and utilize my devices um but yeah what was the other question I forgot it already Which well one so I think that kind of segues nicely into yeah. like our our big kind of uh really succinct version of what our telly episodes are which is like you know you fucked around what did you find out but in yeah. this in this like just if you could like boil it down to like three main things that you found out during the process of writing this these yeah. scenes and the ones you didn't read today like what were your main takeaways Yes. Okay. So my main takeaways were that I need to be way more confident than I like originally am when going into these scenes. I am not a fanfic writer. I am the sort of person who writes OC characters and OC stuff. And I have always had a massive fear of not doing characters justice when I am taking them over and writing for them. Uh, So it was actually really nice to be able to like see this and see it as an opportunity to, you know, do something I don't feel comfortable doing and getting out of my comfort zone, but also feeling like I did it well like I don't I don't know if it would be something that a ton of like you know I mean I'll tell you you did it well I think you you know as someone who also (laughs) adores these characters and is very protective of them I think that's what you you brought this up before in another episode where like the love of a thing and this is literally part of the point of this podcast is like the collaborative storytelling and the fact that in this day and age the ownership of the characters doesn't always belong to the original creator and specifically Nancy Drew, the original creators, a lot of them aren't even around anymore. You know, it's, it's an IP series written by a bunch of people who share ownership, 
but we're, we're getting to this point in history where I think we're blurring the line between who creates something and who ultimately has ownership or at least stake in it. And right. in the days of fan fiction, like I do think that part of the canon is always going to be owned by the fans and creators that don't respect that or who worst case scenario even are like actively antagonizing their fans. I won't name names, but I think we all know there's many shows, especially that do this. Um, and I think for you, like the love of the character shows through like you, the fact that you've really (laughs) expended as much compassion and empathy to the character and trying to figure out, you know, not just like why they are the way they are, but like why they're acting the way they're acting and what potentially, you know, as opposed to just demonizing someone and being like, Oh, this person's just an asshole, you know, they're going to act like an asshole. So I also look forward to you writing, um, you know, this POV, this narrative style with other characters who I know you don't like, because I think it will be interesting to see, you know, when you're not writing your favorites, you know? Um, But yeah, I mean, what was the other, you said something about structure that you wanted to do differently? Yes. The other thing I'm going to do differently is I am going to structure it a little bit differently next time as I'm going through, because I spent a lot of time on these two scenes and I did not need to spend as much time on these two scenes as I did. Um, So going forward, I am definitely going to have a different structure, especially knowing that I have to get an entire episode into this narratively. There are definitely going to be some scenes that I have way more fleshed out than others and others I very well might just leave as like, this is bullet points of, of dialogue and like this is what happens here and here and here, but it's not important and not really what I want to explore. So like I'm leaving this here for V so V knows. But also if I move forward, I also might decide to do a script and we're fucking around. So who knows? Yeah. Well, and that's the great thing about collaborative storytelling is sometimes you're like, yeah, I don't really feel like writing about that. But someone else is like, oh my God, I would love to write about that. You know, right. like, like didactic like, scenes or have a weird scene that, you know, you see that is all bullet points. And I'm like, I didn't have time to write that slash. It wasn't hitting me the right way, but this is what I needed to happen to make this next scene work. And you could be like, holy shit, I need to write at least 500 words of that just to know what it is, just to yeah. feel it like, who knows? So yeah, it could be really fun. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what my next idea is, is that like, I'm going to spend more time focusing on like, just really highlighting the stuff that I want to highlight and not worry too much about like all the in between, which is something that I do and have a problem with anyway. V can tell you I'm not good at scope. (laughs) Uh, See, that's why you always have to have one scope cop on the team. So I'm a project manager by, by trade originally for many, many years here. And so I'm always giving shit about scope creep, which is what happens when you like start a project and then change the, the scope of the project which is all I do. All the triple constraint, friends, children, <laughs> creators, yeah. please learn this. There's there's time, budget, and scope, and you can't change one without fucking up the others. So that's my my 10-second project management how-to. Speaking of which, that leads me to another question, though, because we talk about this a lot, neurodivergent storytelling. The tools that we're often given, especially, you know, as we've both worked in publishing for quite some time, a lot of it's like, just write every day or just, just do an outline or whatever. Um, what are, do you have any homework or reference you want to share uh, that have been helpful for you in your figuring out how to do the thing that works for your brain? Yes. Okay. So I have two other um, like writing software recommendations today. Last time I screamed about Scrivener and about how it was like the only writing thing I used. And actually that is a lie. I totally forgot because I haven't been using them on this laptop since I've had this laptop. They were primarily Windows products, but now they're also for Mac. But there are two fantastic full screen, very cheap, easy to um, get purchase products uh, slash programs for like 
basically focus on writing, scripting, whatever you're working on. Not great for formatting, but great just to like really give yourself a vibe. They're called Ohm Writer or Zen Writer. They're both two different programs, but I've used both of them and they are both incredible for their different purposes. They are really, really, really small little programs. You're not going to be doing much more than just writing and saving things on them, but holy shit, when you can't focus and you need nothing else on your screen and you like you know, need the Wi-Fi off and everything. They have built-in music to their pieces. So you can like, you know, listen to ambient music or ambient sound, white noise, etc. You can also have like typing sound options. So if you like really like a typewriter sound and that gives you, you know, some sort of focus, which does for me for some weird reason, because neurodivergency, brain shit. Yeah. Highly recommend those. I believe both products can be bought for under $10 and uh, like used on both, like I said, Mac, Windows, probably Linux. So highly recommend those. Awesome. We'll make sure to link those in the episode too at the end. Um, Okay. So the re-disclaimers as per usual, again, we don't claim any IP rights, the TV series, the settings, or the characters originally created by Edward Stratemeyer and or adopted by CBS, Simon & Schuster, or any other legally recognized rights holders for characters that are related to the Nancy Drew series or others referenced in this project. All stories referenced for critique on this podcast are for nonprofit educational and informational use only. You want to take us out? I do want to take us out. Thanks again for joining us today. This has been AU City, a rabbit hole to Wonderland and all its fictional dreamlands. We've been your hosts, Ray Noble and V Park. We appreciate every one of y'all listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe, review, and share our podcast if you're enjoying us. Find us on our socials, but most importantly, stay weird and remember to fuck around and find out with your art. We probably legally can't tell you to do that and with anything other than your art. Um, we should maybe add that to disclaimers. But anyway, yeah. stay weird, friends. <laughs> <laughs>